You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Spring is officially in the air. People are looking to get in shape. Masks are coming off. People are wanting to connect, to relate, to get out in the world. And of course, fitness is now getting on people's minds again. So instead of trying to trim the branches of the issues, I thought that we would get to the root today of what is really creating a healthy body composition and talk about all of the science around how our body fat actually works, how the process of fat loss works, and also provide some key insights from some of the leading researchers on how to optimize this process. All right, so this is a wonderful focused compilation dedicated to the science of body fat and how the process of fat loss actually works. Now to kick things off, we're gonna start with a segment from a masterclass that I did, but specifically zooming in on the distinctions about our fat cells themselves. Now, again, this is gonna be loaded with key insights so we can really understand how our amazing bodies work because oftentimes we're trying to fight something that we don't really understand. And once we get this knowledge into our hands about how our amazing body fat, yes, I said amazing body fat, actually works to have a better association with it, then we're gonna be able to drive our body composition into the direction that we wanna be. So again, we're going to kick things off with some key distinctions about our fat cells themselves. Then we're going to pivot into a conversation with biochemist Dr. Sylvia Tara and talk about our body fat and how it controls our hunger and satiety, and also looking at how our body's actually utilizing fat for fuel. And it's not going to be in the conventional way that we think that has not led to very good results for our society. Again, getting this information in our hands leads to a level of empowerment that we really need right now. So, so let's kick things off with a segment dedicated to our fat cells themselves. I'm pumped about this episode. This is the education that I wish I would have received in my university nutrition and biology classes in learning truly how our metabolism actually works. How does the process of fat loss actually work? How does it happen? Where does fat go? When you lose it, does it go to another dimension? Is it going to the multiverse? Do we need Ant-Man to help us to figure all this stuff out? We're going to dive into that today and so much more. So we're going to take you through the process of metabolism, the process of fat loss. Just a very rudimentary understanding of it, but it's going to put so much power into your hands to truly know how the process works. And also, we're going to dive into specific nutrients and foods that actually assist in the enzymes and the hormones involved in the fat loss process. The very first thing to understand right out of the gate is what are we actually dealing with here when we're talking about, quote, burning fat? What are we dealing with here? So often in our society today, we're trying to target and to get rid of something that we don't even understand what it is. We don't even know what it is that we're trying to, quote, get rid of. And so the first thing that I want to share with you, and this is a very important understanding, is that body fat itself, your fat is an organ. All right, body fat is an organ. We tend to think about it like it's just scattered droplets of stuff throughout our body, scattered droplets of unhappiness sometimes scattered throughout our bodies. But it really your fat cells and your fat cell communities, which we're going to talk about, they work together 
as an organ, much like your skin is an organ that really spreads and moves throughout your body and is a big part of your nervous system, your body fat is a huge part of your endocrine system, all right? It works together much like an organ. Your body fat releases hormones and other substances to regulate your body's metabolism by communicating with other organs and tissues, such as your liver, your pancreas, your muscles. And this introduces a critical but overlooked point in how this process actually works in that your body fat itself is largely responsible for regulating your metabolism. Your body fat itself is largely responsible for whether it's, quote, burning itself, all right? So your body fat can function kind of like a stuntman, I guess, lights in itself on fire, all right? But again, it's, it's much more dynamic than that, but it's just the point that I want to bring forth is that your body fat itself is a major player in your endocrine system and regulating hormones and the communication with all your fat loss and fat storage-related hormones and neurotransmitters and neuropeptides it's this beautiful dynamic web, this beautiful dynamic picture, and we're gonna to continue to unpack what that is. Now, there are different types of fat cell communities. Just like any kind of uh, civilization, there's different communities, all right? You've got your, your, you've got your suburban, you've got your urban, you've got your country community. There's all kinds of communities. Just like with our body fat, there are certain body fat cell communities. But first, let's unpack a little bit about the individual in the fat cell community, which is the fat cell itself. The fat cell itself, it's called a fat cell because of its uncanny ability to store fat. You guessed it, fat. And fat cells can actually expand their volume more than 1,000 times their size. All right, when we're born, we have a certain amount of fat cells kind of in our cars, in our genetic destiny. And as we go through childhood and adolescence, and once we get to the age of about 20, the number of body fat cells that you have are the, just about the same number that you're going to have throughout your lifetime. All right, I know this sounds crazy because we think that we're growing and building more fat, creating more fat cells, but what's really happening is the fat cells themselves are just getting more filled with contents. And again, it can expand over a thousand times its size. All right, so these fat cells are like some hefty, hefty cinch sacks. All right, they're like they're like Santa's sack. All right, you know Santa can stuff that sack full of gifts. All right, so it just expands, expands. Just think about a couple Christmas movies. Shout out to shout out to Christmas. All right, so that's what's really happening when we're talking about gaining weight and quote growing fatter or growing fat. It's not the fact that we're just starting to haphazardly create more body fat cells, which that is possible, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But more often, we're talking about the fat cells themselves becoming filled with more and more storage, more and more energy, right? More and more uh, potential energy to be used and packed away for a rainy day, because that's what the fat cells are designed to do. It's an incredible evolutionary adaptation that humans have developed that really enabled us to make it this far and to become the people that we are today. It's thanks in large part to our incredible fat, but we see fat as the enemy, but fat has enabled us to survive when food isn't around. Now, the rub is that today, food is always around. For most people here in this civilization, we've got 24 access to food. You know, even though I grew up 
on food stamps and we were getting food from, you know, food pantries and charities and we were on the WIC program and all these different places to get food. We still had a lot of food, a lot of calorically dense food. Now, please preface, if you don't know this part of the story, make sure to listen to the episode or watch the episode where we did breaking down the history of the calorie and the epigenetic controllers of calories, all right? Because calories are not the tip of the spear when it comes to metabolism and regulation with food, all right? So make sure you listen to that episode. So I'm just gonna take it into consideration. You've already got that piece locked in. And of course, we'll also put it for you in the show notes if you happen to miss that episode. It's very important to understand it because when I went to my private, expensive university, I was taught very first day of nutritional science class that calories were king. Calories are the tip of the spear. If you can control your calories and manage calories, you can manage your metabolism. And that story is more one-sided than an elephant sitting on a seesaw with a chihuahua, all right? It's way out of balance, all right? So make sure to check that out. But to dive more into this component of it, all right, so... We know that the fat cell is, is storing a lot of energy, a lot of potential energy to be used for a rainy day. Our fat cells are just really, really good at doing this job. It's just so good at storing fat because that's what its role is. And it's also good at releasing that fat for energy when things are in balance and when it's needed. It just has to get the signals to do that job. And again, we're gonna keep drilling down into what that looks like. But I just wanted to give you a, a, a brief summation of what's happening when we think that we're quote gaining weight or gaining fat what we're really doing is just filling the fat cells themselves with more content now let's unpack and or should i say pack what is actually going into the fat cell what is actually getting stored in the fat cell enabling it to store energy and or grow and what's getting packed into our fat cells themselves and by the way our fat cells also called lipids sometimes they're called adipocytes they're mainly packed with or composed of these tiny packets of stored energy called triglycerides, all right? But they're also known as triacylglycerols, all right? That's another name for it, or tags is a short for that. Like, tag, gotcha, you fat. Shout out to tag. What happened? Do you remember tag? Like, first you start with the basic tag, which is like, you know, you tag somebody and run. Then you get more evolved and you get to that freeze tag? Do you remember freeze tag? You know, somebody tag you and then you like, you're frozen. You're like, Billy, come on, freeze me. It's just incredible. Good times. Do you know that tag has actually been banned in some schools? True story. But that's for another day. All right, that's for another day. But triacylglycerols. All right, that's not the name that we're going to use because I think it sounds a little bit provocative. Triacylglycerols. So triglycerides, that's what's actually getting packed into the fat cells, enabling them to grow. And triglycerides each consist of three fatty acid molecules attached to a single glycerol molecule. All right. So these fatty acids, three of those with one glycerol. That's why it's called triglycerides or triacylglycerol. Now, what's really crucial to understand is that our fat cells literally join together in fat cell community. So now we know what's actually getting packed into the cell. Now we know the, the role that the fat cell is playing because it's really based on survival. It's just doing the job it's programmed to do. But our fat cells function together in communities, just like any communities 
here on the planet. You've got different types of communities who do different things. And so the first community that we're gonna talk about are when we're talking about, quote, burning fat, we are largely targeting and talking about what are known as storage fats, okay? Storage fats. And the first type of storage fat we're gonna talk about is subcutaneous fat, all right? Subcutaneous fat. Now, subcutaneous fat is the fat cells that are stored just beneath your skin, all right? It's the fat cell community just below your skin, and it's able to store caloric energy, padding your muscle, all right? So the fat on the back of your arms, on your thighs, on your bootay, right? Padding your muscles. If you've ever taken a fall, if you've ever fallen on your rump shaker, you got subcutaneous fat to thank for the little cushion, all right? So this is a type of subcutaneous fat, and it also helps to regulating your body temperature and also serving as a pathway for your nervous system and blood vessels moving throughout your body, you know, from your skin to your muscles and all that communication. Subcutaneous fat is incredible. It has incredible job and incredible intelligence. Now, our ability to store subcutaneous fat, again, it's an evolutionary advantage that has enabled us to store energy that can be used during times of food scarcity. All right, so that's the first type of storage fats is subcutaneous fats. Any of these fats can get out of hand, all right? So number one, subcutaneous fat. The next type of storage fat is called visceral fat, all right, visceral fat, also known as omentum fat, omentum, which is derived from, I believe it's the Latin word meaning fatty apron, all right, fatty apron. Who knew? All right, visceral fat has been found. Now, this is the type of fat that, unlike your subcutaneous fat, which you can have subcutaneous fat on your belly as well, that's the stuff you can pinch. The visceral fat is that deep abdominal fat. It's the fat that's really pressing upon and putting pressure on your internal organs, all right? So it's like really cramming up space with your guts, with your pancreas, with your liver, that deep abdominal fat. And the most important piece here that I wanna talk about with visceral fat is that it's been found to contribute most often of the different types of fat cell communities that we're talking about. Visceral fat has been found to contribute more to diabetes and insulin resistance than other types of fat by far. And this is based on data published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, affirm that carrying extra visceral fat substantially increases your risk of heart disease and having a heart attack as well. So it's no joke. All right, visceral fat, if it, if it gets out of hand, it can be problematic. But again, it's an adaptation that we developed to store energy that we can use in times of need. So we've got subcutaneous storage fat. We've got visceral storage fat. Now, another one that a lot of folks don't know about, and when I was in school, again, I was taught that fat and muscle are dichotomous. Like they're just, like you're just trying to burn fat, build muscle. Burn fat, build muscle, right? That's the marketing. So you're led to believe that these two things are dichotomous, but they're really intersecting, but they're really attached, but they're really working together. And this is highlighted perfectly in this next type of storage fat, which is called intramuscular fat. All right, intramuscular fat. This is our third major type of storage fat. Intramuscular fat is used as on-site energy by your muscles for you to do basic movements. So even when I just move my arms just now, thank you, intramuscular fat. It's being used as on-site energy to move our bodies. 
It can also really act as your muscle's right-hand man. And seemingly, though, this fat, even though it's kind of a right-hand man, it can get backup dancer syndrome, too. You know, it could be it can want to steal the show a little bit. And shout out to the, the background dancers who made it. You know, they hooked up with the with the lead artist. Shout out to Chris Judd. What happened to Chris Judd? He married J-Lo. Like, Kevin Federline. Kevin. Kevin, where are you, man? I hope you're all right. He, he locked up Britney. All right. He's backup dancer. Made it to the foreground. All right. So this muscle can try to steal the show as well. And boy, they stole the show for a minute there. But, but again, this type of fat is also incredibly valuable and helpful when it's in balance. Now, researchers at the Boston University School of Medicine affirmed that notable increases in intramuscular fat lead to measurable decreases in insulin sensitivity. All right, this is bad news. When we get into how this process of fat loss is actually working in the conversation of insulin coming into it, you're gonna understand more why this is problematic. All right, so intramuscular fat, same thing. If you were storing too much energy there and that, that muscle is becoming abnormally functional, we can start to run into some overall problems with our metabolism. All right, now to summarize, the three previous fat cell communities that we covered, subcutaneous, visceral, and intramuscular, are all fat communities that store energy. They store energy. And they're all in a class called white adipose tissue. All right, white adipose tissue, or what? All right, whereas when we get to our next community that we're gonna talk about, you're going to learn about a type of thermogenic fat cell community that doesn't store fat, it actually burns it. And that fat that's really become headlined news today is brown fat, or brown adipose tissue, or BAT. Bad, bad fat in the dark of the night. No, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. Somebody hit the bat signal. All right, now, brown fat is actually the subject of many studies right now because of its profound impact that it has on our metabolism. It's one of these evolutionary adaptations. Babies have a lot higher ratio of brown adipose tissue because it helps to really insulate the body, regulate temperature, and protect against hypothermia. All right, keeping us nice and warm and cozy. But as we get older, our ratio of brown fat diminishes. Again, this is a type of fat that burns fat for energy. And on a human adult, most of our brown fat is primarily found around our neck, our collarbones, our shoulder blades, upper back region, down along our spine. That's where we're going to have our pockets and spots of brown adipose tissue. But again, it's really a potent energy burning source. And it accomplishes this partly through a special protein called thermogenin. Now, again, as we get older, our ratio and activity even of brown adipose tissue can dramatically decrease. But there are certain things that we can do with our nutrition and lifestyle to increase our ratio of brown adipose tissue. Now, one of the big takeaways here, and this is published by the Guerin Institute of Medical Research, and this is in my book, Eat Smarter. All of this stuff that we're covering today is in Eat Smarter. So make sure if you have not read Eat Smarter, USA Today, national bestseller. What are you doing? You need to get this book like ASAP. Also, the audio book is available as well. This study was published 
by the Garen Institute of Medical Research found that once activated, just a tiny amount of brown fat, 50 grams, just 50 grams of brown fat could burn an additional 300 calories of energy in a day. Simply upping your body's ratio by just a 50 grams is teeny, tiny little amount instantly changes your metabolic rate and increases your body's ability to burn 300 more calories a day. These are these really interesting dynamics of our metabolism that was not taught to me in my conventional university education. And also, how can we actually influence our brown fat ratios? How can we influence the activity of our brown fat? And these are simply things that were not taught to me. And one of the most powerful takeaways about brown adipose tissue is the fact that it's brown. The reason that it's brown is that it's so dense in mitochondria. It's so dense in mitochondria, which is really an end point for this process of fat oxidation or quote fat burning, which we're gonna talk about more, but I wanna give you the heads up. That brown adipose tissue is so dense in that end destination where fat is actually getting burned. It's one of the things that makes it really remarkable. All right, so that's another fat cell community. And we're gonna share one more here on this angle of potential of what this fat cell community is actually doing. This one's a little bit different. And this fat cell community is a variable fat. It's a variable fat that can actually do different things. And it's called beige fat, all right, beige fat. Now beige fat is the answer to the question, what if my white fat could get a tan? What if it could become a little bit more brown and do some different things, do some of the jobs that brown fat does? And beige fat is fascinating in that it actually appears to have the flexibility to act like either brown fat or white fat. All right, so it's flexible. It has that ability to, to, to pivot between two things like Van Damme hitting that split. All right, it's, it's able to do that, to, to bridge that, to have that flexibility and variability. According to scientists at Georgia State University, beige fat has potent potential to fight obesity in much the same way as brown fat by burning fuel rather than storing it. But beige fat is genetically distinct from brown fat. Brown fat cells are born from stem cell precursors that also produce muscle cells. Beige fat, on the other hand, forms within deposits of white fat cells from beige cell precursors. All right, and again, this is coming directly out of Eat Smarter. And there are certain things that we can do with our nutrition and our lifestyle that influence the browning of these beige fat cells and also the activity of our brown fat, which we're gonna get to a little bit later in the show. But first, we've gotta understand how this process of fat loss actually works. Next up in our compilation dedicated to the science of body fat and how fat loss actually works, we have a segment from biochemist, Dr. Sylvia. Tara. Now she has some pioneering work dedicated to understanding how our body fat really works. And this was one of my favorite conversations that I've had in recent years here on the Model Health Show. And in this segment, she's going to be sharing some powerful insights about body fat, hunger, and satiety and how it's all connected. And also how body fat storage and utilization works similarly to a banking system. All right, so check out this clip from the remarkable Dr. Sylvia Tara. 
So it turns out fat is actually an organ. I think most people think of fat as a tissue and in small bits, it's a tissue. So it's like your skin. If you just take a piece of skin, it's a piece of tissue, but your skin in its entirety functions like an organ and fat is the same way. So fat in its entirety in your body actually uh, it produces hormones that your body depends on. And one of those very important hormones is called leptin. Leptin has a function all over your body. It's correlated to brain size, right? So people who are anorexic, um, their brains actually start shrinking because they don't have enough fat. They don't have enough leptin to maintain brain mass. Their bones become more porous. Our bones are dependent on leptin. Our reproductive system is dependent on leptin. So there are people in the world who have um, deficient fat, meaning their fat's not functioning well. They have uh, plenty of fat, but they're missing some genes in their fat, and their fat is not producing leptin. And those people can't reproduce. They don't have, the women don't have regular periods, you know, the men don't even mature into fully grown men because leptin has a strong role in maturity and reproduction. So our bodies depend on fat for leptin. And uh, so when we lose fat, uh, we lose leptin. And once that happens, our bodies really react to that and it increases our appetite. Our appetites go through the roof. And you might notice if you even lose five pounds, 10 pounds, you get really hungry. And it's our, our brains responding to, I'm not sensing leptin. Uh, anywhere. And it wants you to eat more and it wants it to bring it back. So fat has enormous functions in our body. It's not just a reserve of calories, although that is one of its roles. It actually functions in so many other ways. Mm. And that was the the first time that leptin was discovered. And I love the story that you shared because as it was getting towards the end, I was like, is this leptin? Is it leptin she's talking about? <laughs> right. and, and it was uh, in relationship, they were utilizing these, are they called OBE? Mice? Oh, OB and DB mice. Yes. Yeah, so that's OB right. and DB. Yeah. And I think it was like OB, OB. Yes. And then you shortened it. And because we were trying to find out, like, what it, and this is in humans as well now, we know that some folks literally they have a mutation where they cannot control their hunger. That's right. And we look at people and just point the finger and just say, you know, you're just, you're, you don't have discipline. And sometimes it actually, if they're not producing leptin, you are ravenously hungry. Yes. And, the discovery of leptin is, and what we talk about, and even I've talked about many times, is in relationship to a, being a society hormone. But thank you for sharing that because it also is involved in your bones. Yes. It's involved in your reproductive system. Yeah. And people that have this mutation or even these these mice, smaller brain size that's right. is one of those things. So that's why just one of the reasons fat's so important is fat can talk, right? It can talk, right? It talks to your brain. And uh, it's good you brought that up because there's a direct link to your hypothalamus. It talks to your hypothalamus and it says, okay, we're good here. We have nutrition. We have enough fat. All's good. And so when you start to lose fat or you have defective fat, like the the, the character I talked about in the book, the patient I talked about in the book, um, if you're not getting that signal to your brain, you get ravenously hungry. Mm-hmm. And Layla was the patient I talked about yeah. um, where she had defective fat. Her fat wasn't producing leptin. So her brain was never getting a signal that she was satiated. And uh, she actually, yeah, poor little girl, right? She she was going through the trash looking for food because her parents were trying to restrict it. And she would break into a locked freezer, break into cupboards, go through trash. She she could not stop eating. She was eating eating frozen raw fish. Yes. Like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That's right. It's not even what you eat. It doesn't even have to taste good. They just need to keep on eating. Um, Once they figured out, this was the discovery of leptin, right? Once they figured out that uh, she was leptin deficient, she had a, a gene mutation, they could inject leptin into her. And she stopped eating. Yeah. It was that magical, that quick. And uh, she was now a normal, a normal and young lady. And also change in behavior. Yes. It brought forth a maturity yes. as well of the brain. That's right. Wow, leptin is super important. Yeah. And your fat 
is super important because that's where leptin is coming from. Yeah, so I think you know the secret life of fat, it helps you respect your fat. Your fat has a role. Like I said, it's not just calorie reserve. It actually has a very important role in your body. And so when we try to lose it, your body fights back. It wants to keep it on. It doesn't want you to lose it. And so you have to really understand your fat to control your fat. Mm, Otherwise, you won't understand the changes you're, you're facing in behavior, your hunger, you know, it feels like why your body's wanting this back. And I think what the book helped me do was um, I didn't become so much of a yo-yo dieter anymore. I've been able to keep it off because I understand, you know, why I'm having this feeling, why I have this urge to eat more. And uh, it led to a number of different strategies as far as behavioral strategy, just just seeing it through to the end. I think I got very determined once I finally figured out what fat was doing to me. (laughs) Yes, and we'll talk about some of the, like, what do we do here in a minute? But I want to really, I want to go back a little bit and talk about the basic, like, and this is some, you know, similar to what I was taught in a university setting about the role of fat. But I love how you talk about it in the terms of currency. Um, and this is something I would relate to other things as well when I talk yeah. about things like insulin, things like that. But I love how, you know, looking at we've got glucose, yeah. glycogen, and fat. So can you talk about that relationship as sure. far as thinking about it in terms of currency? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's different ways your body gets energy when it needs it. I mean, one is when you eat right away, you get some glucose in your blood. Um, that's cash, right? It's it's quick. It's in your blood. You can use it very very quickly. Um, after that, it gets stored um, into glycogen. That's another storage, and it can also get stored into fat. Now, glycogen is in your muscle cells. It's in your liver. It's like a checking account, right? right. So it's not right there, right? It's not right. It's not cash in your pocket, but you can easily write a check, right? And you, you can give it out. So your body has a little bit of work to get it out of the cell and it produces glucose. Now fat is like a certificate of deposit, right? So fat is when you've all the glucose is now going to get converted into a fat molecule and stored away for later use. And that fat is harder to get to. That source of energy is harder to get to. It's like it's not always there right away when you need it. Your body will go for glucose first. It'll go for glycogen also. And then if you really need it, it's going to go for your fat. And so when we try to lose that fat, you can imagine it's hard because your, your body is first using the glucose and glycogen, and only when it really needs it is it going to get into that fat and help you lose it. Mm, I love that so much. Your body is so sophisticated to have those currency systems, yeah. you know, and so it's just logical as well, having that cash on hand to do, you know, instant processes. But when there's too much on hand, we don't want to just walk around with this, you know, stacks of cash. Right. We're not the Migos for people out there who know, you know, some of these... Uh, entertainers that just carry this insane amount of money around. But for a lot of us, we're going to store it as safekeeping and use it as needed. And then we've got fat, which is harder to get to. Like your body's going to use the glucose, glycogen, and then like go through that effort to get there. And so we want to, first of all, you know, one of the basic thing is like, let's not get into a place where we're like storing too much in these certificates of deposit. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. And so in thinking about this differently and how we're you know, consuming food and storing energy and then using energy later, but it's, it's just a really interesting mosaic of the, the body's capacity. So Yeah, and it's, it's also really good that we're storing fat because if you have too much glucose hanging around or too much glycogen or, or too many lipids hanging around and they have no place to go, they start to store in places they shouldn't be, right. right? Like your heart, like your liver, like other places. And so actually the fact that our body is putting these away and storing them, sequestering them into our fat is very healthy for us. Right. In fact, there are some people who don't store fat very well and these extra nutrients float around quite a bit. And I wrote about one patient named Christina Vina who had this problem. She couldn't she couldn't properly make fat. And uh, 
she, her liver was about, you know, multiple times the size it should have been because things were getting stored into a liver because she couldn't store it into her fat. And so our fat's really important. Be thankful you have it. And even when you're getting fatter, be thankful you are because if you weren't, it'd be floating around in your heart and your liver and your blood and other places where it shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. So the body's so amazing. Yeah. And with that, in bringing up the liver, um, there was a time when experts, physicians, researchers thought that the liver was like the primary, if not the the place, making fat. Yeah. And since then, obviously, new data and thoughts have evolved to know that fat can actually make itself. It can. I think still there's a lot made by the liver. and Some of the fat in your diet is deposited right into your fat cells. And yes, so the third, the third element is that. So we're learning about fat. And, uh, you know, really the obesity epidemic in a way helps because more NIH money went into fat research and understanding what to do with it. And so I think, you know, the more it's a health problem, the more research goes into it. And uh, it's becoming very interesting on how we, uh, how, what we're learning about fat, what it really is and how to manage it. And I think most interestingly is that everyone's fat is not the same, right? Mm -hmm. People have a, a different metabolic profiles, different genetic profiles. Yeah. Um, and you have to really understand your fat Right, my fat is not the same as yours. Mine is, you know, I have a very stubborn form of fat that it takes a lot to get it off. But gender will make a difference as well. The bacterial distribution we have in our gut will make a difference as well as viruses. So, important thing is to understand your fat and your body and how you best can manage your weight. Now, in that segment, Dr. Tara talked about the critical aspect of leptin and our satiety hormones that are really regulating our sense of satisfaction and satiety in the world. Without proper management and cohesiveness of these powerful hormones, we can be in a state where we are ravenous all the time, where it's very difficult to do anything but think about food. And there are people who are living in that state habitually. And we can thrust ourselves into that state accidentally tinkering around with the wrong types of diets for us right now. And what I want to do is lean into the things that humans have been utilizing the longest. What are the compounds that help to regulate these key satiety hormones? And oftentimes they're found in food. Now, there is a specific fat that's been well noted to be, of all the different types of fats that folks are consuming today, most associated with regulation of our satiety hormones, specifically leptin. A randomized double-blind study published in the International Journal of Obesity and Related Metabolic Disorders, put participants on a reduced calorie diet that included either supplemental MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides, or supplemental long-chain triglycerides, or LCTs. After the data was compiled, it was revealed that the group who included MCT oil lost more weight, eliminated more body fat, and experienced higher levels of satiety. The researchers noted that MCTs are able to boost the oxidation of stored body fat while increasing satiety at the same time. That's incredibly unique for a nutritive compound to be able to have that kind of impact. So this is something I have on pretty much a daily basis. I utilize MCT oil, but the quality always matters. Where you're getting these things from matters more than ever. There's not much regulation for nutritive products, especially in the supplement realm. And a lot of folks don't realize that. So you want to make sure that your sourcing is right. And you want to make sure that it's not cut with other unsavory oils and the like. 
So this is why I get my MCT oil from Onnit. Head over to onnit.com forward slash model. You're going to get 10% off their incredible MCT oil and also their emulsified MCT oil. That's onnit.com forward slash model to get your hands on their incredible MCT oil. This is something easy to add to your tea or coffee or smoothies, even salad dressings. So many great ways you can implement these MCT oils that are derived from coconut source. And again, has a remarkable impact on supporting weight loss while also helping to support satiety. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash model. Next up, we have an important insight on the role of body fat that most people don't know about, which is the storage of environmental toxins. And to articulate this, I've got on New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Alejandro Younger, to tell you more about it. Especially in America, there's a problem with obesity. And there's a lot of reasons why, and they talk about diabetes and all the, all the metabolic uh, alterations that lead to that. But very few people are talking about one factor, which is that the body only knows how to adapt and survive. It doesn't have a code. It doesn't have a genetic information on how to get sick. So when you see the body accumulating fat and retaining fat and generating fat, there must be a reason for it. And one of the reasons is that 90% of the toxins that we're exposed to through the air we breathe, the water we drink and shower with, the medications we consume, the cosmetics we apply on our skins, but mostly through the food-like products or edible products that we are eating as foods, they're loaded with chemicals, 90% of which are only lipophilic, meaning they only dissolve in fat. So let's follow the journey of a lipophilic molecule that comes in through one of these sources, right? goes into your circulation, whether it's through the skin or through the gut, and then starts circulating and eventually passes through the liver. Now, if things are working well, the liver will detect it, will spit its enzymes that will cut the, the molecule and alter its composition, its chemical properties, and transform it, biotransform it from lipophilic from fat soluble into water soluble the reason it does that is because the body can only eliminate things through water we don't sweat fat we don't pee fat we only pee and sweat water and also water is in the feces so we need to biotransform these molecules from lipophilic into hydrophilic into water soluble yeah. in order to be able to eliminate them now because the liver is overwhelmed lacking nutrients to manufacture those enzymes that cleave those molecules, then these molecules will remain. Some of them remain right there in the liver. And the liver starts doing what? Buffering their irritation by accumulating fat and therefore leading to fatty liver, which is now becoming a huge Epidemic. problem. The other ones will continue circulating and then will start lodging themselves in fatty tissue brain thyroid breasts 
prostate, you know, and when you look at where the the surge in cancers are, it's in those organs. So the rest of the mo of, of the fatty dissolvable molecules that have not lodged into a tissue, then the body will retain and generate fat in order to buffer their irritation, leading to obesity. So obesity really part of the you know the cause behind it or the root cause is this overload of lipophilic toxins that we are not able to process because of all the reasons we've we, we just spoke about that's remarkable so essentially this is an adaptation it is an adaptation and survival mechanism which is really the only thing the body knows how to do what we see and perceive as diseases are just adaptation mechanisms yeah because and i heard you say this before there really isn't a disease program in our dna it's really about adaptation and so our epi epidemics of obesity of liver disease is it's now in the top 10 causes of death in the united states and it's just like not being talked about and the liver is so remarkable it's responsible for countless processes and it's responsible for also drug metabolism for supplement metabolism for anything that we're bringing into our bodies and also the things that we're exposed to and obviously it's overburdened today with our environments and you said something i want to point this out you said food like products why did you say food like products because we're not eating food anymore you go to the supermarket and take a bird's eye view what is what comprises 90 percent of the stuff that people eat everything that's in the supermarket in the middle of the supermarket in shelves and in order for things to be in shelves, they have to have preservatives, conservatives, and then on top of it, they have coloring agents and smelling agents and texturizing agents and so that they call your attention and they hook you into consuming them more and more. All these chemicals that, you know, cause their damage. But what you see is that these products, they have a food or two as one of the ingredients. They're not really foods. The foods are in the perimeter, you know? The vegetables, the fruits, the fish, and the meats. And the, but, but that's less than 10% of what's available in a supermarket. In that clip, Dr. Younger is sharing such an important understanding about body fat that's overlooked today. Our body fat is really functioning in a way that is constantly trying to support our health, trying to protect us in many ways. And we're faced with very abnormal conditions being subjected to environmental toxins that the human body is never associated with. And also when we talk about environmental toxins, of course, we're talking about what we bring in from the external world into our bodies in the form of food, or as Dr. Younger articulated, food-like products, right? So this is one of those other leverage points for us to understand our body fat is sticking around because it's trying to protect us. And we need to create conditions to where our bodies can safely release these toxins and also metabolic waste and get them out of our system so that we can then shift our body fat ratio, right? But they're going to be sticking around if they've got to do what they've got to do to be your bodyguard, all right? So what are some things we can do here? This is why exercise is so remarkable. It's not just for trying to get the fitness aspect. It's for detoxification. It's for eliminating metabolic waste. It's a primary mover of things out of your body is moving your body. Right, so exercise, being able to break a sweat, sauna is great. But most importantly, we also want to 
avoid exposure to toxicity in the form of low quality food to the best of our abilities. All right, next up, we've got a little bit more on our various fat cell communities from Dr. Sylvia Tara and also what it means when good fat goes bad. The subcutaneous fat is that fat right under your skin. So like in your arms, in your legs, you know, that's under your skin fat stored stored underneath. There's also visceral fat, which is that fat that can be stored under your stomach wall, right? So two types of stomach fat. One type of stomach fat is that under the skin, subcutaneous stomach fat, and then there's visceral fat, and some people get this underneath the stomach wall. Now, visceral fat um, can be very unhealthy because it gets close to your pancreas. It can cause inflammation. And so that's the kind of fat you definitely want to lose. People can be fat but fit if they mostly have subcutaneous fat. Yeah. If once it starts getting in your gut, that's when it's correlated with diabetes, um, it's correlated with heart disease. And I do cancer. talk about cancer, that's right. And I do talk about sumo wrestlers in the book also because they're a fascinating case of fat but fit. So uh, sumo wrestlers exercise for six to eight hours a day. They're actually very, very fit. And believe it or not, they don't have visceral fat. All that fat you see on a sumo wrestler is right under the skin. It's subcutaneous. Um, and interestingly, when they get off the sumo regime, when they retire, they get metabolically unhealthy very quickly. Although throughout their sumo career, they were healthy. They didn't have metabolic disease. And it turns out that exercise is associated with a hormone called adiponectin that actually controls how much visceral fat you get versus subcutaneous fat. And because they exercise so much, sumo wrestlers, they have high levels of adiponectin, and they don't have visceral fat. And so that's how you can be, you know, if, if, it's always best not to have too much fat. But if you are going to have, you know, extra fat, better to store it in your subcutaneous area rather than the visceral area. Awesome. So, so insightful. And so you mentioned, so we got the visceral fat. And the first time I heard about visceral fat was... It was called omentum fat, which yeah. is, I think it might be Greek, meaning something like fatty apron or something yes. like that. And now just understanding, so we've got that, but now we know about brown fat, yeah. right? Brown adipose tissue or bat, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and bat is, uh, it's actually good fat to have. So bat actually has a dual role. It does store some energy, but it's also responsible for producing heat. Right? So most of our white fat, and there's two types of white fat, that's visceral fat and subcutaneous fat that we talked about, but then there's brown fat that exists around your clavicle, around your back and your heart, and it actually burns energy. So instead of just storing energy, it's burning energy to produce heat. And there are some interesting experiments now to look at injecting brown fat into white fat to help people lose weight because it's actually burning off energy. Um, and there's ways to get brown fat. And um, one way is to swim in cold water. And interestingly, when I, I wrote this book and did this research, I, you know, I told my husband about it, and he started swimming in our <laughs> nearby pool, a freezing cold pool, every morning. And he's already a skinny guy, but he got almost emaciated just because I think he was burning so much calories from the swim. And I think he was increasing his brown fat, and he ended up eating like just tons of calories uh, while this was going on. So uh, it's good fat to have, and there are ways of getting more of it. Yeah, I love that example yeah. of how like, he's eating. He's eating a lot. Yeah. You hear stories of people like Michael Phelps, yes. right? Who's eating like 12,000 calories a day. It's because, and, and, and he's, if you just compare the movements that he's doing to somebody who's not in a pool, yeah. he's not burning that much. It's because the pool itself is adding that X factor. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the cryotherapy and the cold thermogenesis and all that stuff. And we'll put a, a link in the show notes for everybody. I did a masterclass on this a while back. But another way we talked about before the show potentially is 
helping to support your body's production of melatonin, which has been found, this was in the journal Obesity Reviews, that melatonin, first of all, there's 400 times more melatonin in your gut than in your pineal Hmm, gland, which is what I was taught this in school. Mm -hmm. It's in your pineal gland, in the story, it's not. But they found that melatonin increases the production and uh, mobility of this brown fat, which is really cool. And the reason it's brown is that it has so much more mitochondria. It's like super dense in this energy power plant in our cells. It's nuts. But you talk about beige fat as well. So please talk about that because it's the first time I've seen it in a book. Yeah, that's a newly discovered type of fat. And that's fat that's capable of turning brown. Isn't that interesting? So it's it's hanging around. And, you know, our body often has these kind of sleeper cells, like stem cells that are waiting to see what the needs are at the moment. And they're capable of turning into things as you need to. And beige fat um, can turn brown. And one of the triggers that makes them turn brown is actually exercise, right? Um, they have a, a, a protein called ericin in them. And when we exercise, um, they can turn into brown fat. And so it's being researched now. It's pretty new. But, um, you know, just know if you, you can increase your levels of brown fat by exposure to cold, right, by cold swims and by exercising as well. So exercise, you know, I, I write about it, and I think it's a good it's a good tool. So most of weight management is about what you eat, but there is a part that where exercise can be very, very helpful um, just to make sure not to trigger a, a huge hunger reflex, right, <laughs> which we'll get into, yeah. And that, I think that comes with stressful exercise, you know, just like chronically stressful. Exercise in and of itself, is, is, it is a hormetic stressor. Yeah. But when it just becomes chronic, like you're trying to out-exercise your other issues. Right. And then we miss out on these benefits because, you know, we're just we become so like sympathetic, yeah. dominant. So totally nuts. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, and this was just so beautiful that, you, again, like, this is stuff that's like out there, but to put it in this book all together in one place yeah. is so refreshing and so good. And how fat literally holds us together. It holds our cells together. Oh, yeah. yeah. So please talk about that. Yeah, I mean, fat, we always think about fat as just, you know, the fat in our thighs or butt or stomach, but it's actually integrated throughout your whole body, right? So every cell has a, a uh, membrane, and in the membrane, it's made of fat, and that's what holds your cells together. Um, our nerves have fat around them, myelin. Um, you know, it's mostly fat, and that's what helps our nerves conduct. Um, fats used as a messenger. There's eicosanoids or fat molecules that are used for short-term messaging within our body. So there's so many different types of fat in your body, um, and we get fixated on the white fat that makes us look not good. And again, a lot of that is because of the dieting industry we live around, right? Putting such a laser focus on our fat and why we should be worried and why we shouldn't have it and why we need to buy 10 different products to get rid of it or, you know, different books or programs. And uh, it makes us fixate on one type of fat only. But it's critical, as we talked about earlier. Um, it produces hormones, leptin. It produces estrogen as well, mm, fat. I was just going to ask you about <laughs> that. Yeah, and as women get older and their ovaries stop producing estrogen, they actually depend on their fat for estrogen. Um, you know, it's a messenger. It holds our cells together and helps our brain conduct signals. So love your fat. That's one of the lessons <laughs> of yes. this research is love that, your I'm fat. I'm sure that was just a huge revelation for you. It was, You know, yeah. going through the process. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I want to talk about... You know, you got these really cool sections and how it's like good girl gone bad was like good fat goes bad. Yeah. And this is something that we can start to pay attention to and to influence 
Yeah, sure. I mean, fat in excess, you know, massive amounts of excess is not good. So fat that turns into visceral fat that starts to deposit in your visceral area, that is not good. That is a fat that uh, causes inflammation signals uh, mm -hmm. to be emitted. It's the fat that is correlated with diabetes type 2. And it is also the fat that's correlated with heart disease. So a normal amount of fat is good. Um, you know, fat subcutaneous, if it's if it's stored in your arms and legs and under your skin, uh, can be quite healthy. And we need our fat to, for all the reasons you just mentioned, the brain size, you know, um, our immune systems rely on fat, our reproductive systems yeah. do our happiness, our emotional state relies on fat as well. Um, but then when you get too much, it starts to deposit in places where it shouldn't, then that becomes a problem. And that is good fat gone bad. Mm. So we want the good level. We don't want it being excessive and we don't want it underneath our stomach wall. Um, we want to keep it at a healthy amount. All right, to close out this compilation dedicated to the surprising science of body fat and how fat loss actually works, that's what we're going to focus on now. We're going to talk about how the process of fat loss actually works and some things that you can implement to support the process along the way. Now, a lot of folks don't realize this, but it's estimated that the average lean adult male stores about 130,000 calories in fat on their frame, all right? 130,000 calories in fat stored on the average lean adult male. And that is enough energy to sustain life for the average person for approximately 65 days, all right, 65 days. Now, excessive fat storage obviously can be unhealthy, it can be problematic, this can bump into issues with you know, performance and with confidence and all these other aspects of psychology that come into play. But most importantly, we're talking about health and having that foundation of health. Seeking to be healthier can have an outpicturing of changes to our body composition and the things that we would, would kind of attribute towards having a healthy physical culture. Now, with that said, once we start to venture into obesity, we'll be storing hundreds of thousands more calories and fat on our frame. Tremendous amounts of energy. And again, an average adult male, that's 65 days of energy. Just imagine how much energy is stored once we venture into that domain. And you know, coming up from the environment that I lived in, most of my family was obese. And this is just what was a norm coming from where I'm from. And Part of the reason that I do this work that I do is that I love my family and there's so many good people. We just didn't know. We didn't have this education. We didn't know how any of this stuff worked. The, the, the distance of our knowledge would range from our eyes to the television screen telling us to do a slim fast shake if we wanna lose weight, all right? Shake for breakfast, one for lunch, and a sensible dinner. Sensible, what is sensible? What does that even mean? Sensible for who? There's a lot less sensibility today, all right? But that's the, that's the scope of our education. We don't understand how these processes work, and I wanna empower people to understand how our bodies work and how powerful food is at driving and controlling these processes. And the process of withdrawing the energy from your fat to use it as fuel is often referred to as lipolysis, all right? Lipolysis. And the process of storing fat in your body is often referred to as lipogenesis. All right, lipogenesis. Now remember, with excess energy coming in, you are generally not making new fat cells. You are filling up the fat cells with more and more moolah 
to use if the situation ever called for it. But the big takeaway from this is that your body works on a hierarchy. All right, it's kind of like accounting. So another class from college that I took that bared out in different ways, but it's gonna bear out for me beneficial, not from what I thought it would, but in the realm of nutrition, it was LIFO, FIFO. That's last in, first out, and first in, first out. And with your body fat, it's working on a hierarchy of needs with the utilization of energy. The last in is the first thing to get used, right? What's already stored is stored body fat. And that's what we're typically targeting. We wanna just use some of this energy that's hanging around on my body. But even though we've got all of this caloric energy, this stored energy in the form of fat, your body is going to, in comes another meal, in comes another source of nutrition, in comes another source of, of, of glucose. It's coming into the body, it's going to be the first thing to get used because it's easier. All right, your body is working on that hierarchy. Once that's not coming in, then it can shift over and start using some of that stored glycogen. And then it can finally start to burn through some of the stored body fat. So it sounds like an arduous process. Now, keep in mind, there are ways to supersede and get to that stored fat faster. All right, that's all in Eat Smarter as well. But, you know, these are different things through our nutrition and our lifestyle that enable your body to go and snag up some of that stored fat a little bit quicker. But most importantly, it, it's if we were looking from through the lens of prevention and not storing excessive fat in the first place, it always makes the process easier. All right. So I want to empower you so you understand how all of these steps work. All right. So if we want to get to that stored fat, that stored energy, we've got to have processes in place that encourage the process to happen. And also, if we feel nourished and we're not constantly putting more food in, because you think about it, if, we've, if we're storing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of calories and fat on our bodies, so much energy that we can survive for months, you know, on paper, on paper, all right, why on earth will we still be hungry? Why will we still be hungry? And one of the big takeaways that you find out as you go through Eat Smart is that chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic overeating. Chronic abnormal activity of your hunger and satiety hormones leads to chronic overeating. These are all things that need to be accounted for that are controlling your behaviors, that are controlling what these metabolic processes are doing. It's so much bigger than this calorie-focused paradigm of nutrition that has largely failed our society today. And so, again, we're putting the power into your hands. Now you understand how this process works getting a fat bank account, basically. And now that we know how the energy is getting stored in the fat cell, let's talk a little bit about how we're gonna move the fat out of the cell. Now, in Eat Smarter, in order to understand how this process of fat loss works in a really digestible way, pun intended, big pun intended, shout out to big pun, all right? I wanna be a player no more. Uh, but to understand how this process really works in a digestible way, in a way that makes sense, it's really getting to the really powerful tenet of education, which is taking something that we don't know and connecting it to something that we do know. That's what learning really is. It's taking something that we don't know and connecting it to something that we do know. And so what I use as an analogy to understand how, how the process of fat loss works is going to the movies or going to see a play. And we use this paradigm of a metabolic theater where all of this action is actually taking place. Now, in this metabolic theater, in this domain of the fat cell itself, where you know, you're watching your favorite movie or you're watching your favorite comedian or favorite stage play, it's all happening 
in the fat cell itself. All right, it's where some, some magic's happening, all right? Now, in order for the fat cell to get stored with energy and that process of, of ushering in energy into that cell, there's a couple of key enzymes that are involved in all of these processes. So we talked about the process of what actually constitutes the stuff that fat cells getting stored with, right? Which is the triglycerides, all right? Three fatty acids combined with one glycerol. And so those are getting shuttled into the cell by the boss in charge of all the ushers, telling, the th telling everybody the theater's open, come on in, have a good time, and that's insulin. All right, insulin is opening the doors to the metabolic theater and allowing that fat to get stored. With the assistance of certain enzymes, you know, there's enzymes like lipoprotein lipase that are involved in like moving fatty acids around to different domains. But in particular, now when talking about fat loss or ushering the fat out of the fat cell, we're talking about the enzyme called hormone sensitive lipase or HSL, hormone sensitive lipase. Now, hormone sensitive lipase is like the little usher that's there to help move fat out of your cellular theater after the show is over. And again, without them, without hormone sensitive lipase, and there's others as well, there's monoglyceride lipase, there's adipose triglyceride lipase, but hormone sensitive lipase is kind of like the leader of their little, you know, like within any little clique at a, at a job, there's like somebody who's kind of like the leader. All right, even though they don't got the title necessarily. All right, so hormone-sensitive lipase. And it's responsible for the mobilization of free fatty acids from adipose tissue is triggered, this process of lipolysis by hormone-sensitive lipase. And it's easily acted upon by hormones that we, it's called hormone-sensitive for a reason, hormones that we can influence can help hormone-sensitive lipase to do its job more efficiently and effectively. And moving onward, if we have excess fat that we wanna lose, we want hormone-sensitive lipase and his buddies to be clocked in on the job and ready to put forth their best efforts. And now, even though hormone-sensitive lipase is the head usher in charge of getting fat out of its seat, there are some other bosses who actually write their checks. And these are the managers of their departments. And their bosses are the twin brothers insulin and glucagon not identical all right and they're they're both from their loving mother miss pancreas all right now even though they're brothers they have two very different personalities insulin is more calculating careful always wanting to save up and stockpile because you never know when you're going to need it it's all about safety and security and he wants to keep the attendees in the seats keep the fat cell theater full and out of the aisles, by the way, which is the bloodstream, all right? Out of the aisles in the fat cell. And glucagon, on the other hand, is really more of a free spirit in many ways. It believes in minimalism. We just use what we, we use. We just have what we need, and that's what we need, all right? Now, just to be clear, according to the Journal of Lipid Research, glucagon does have some influence on activating hormone-sensitive lipase. But... Hormone-sensitive lipase is primarily activated when insulin just sits its butt down. That's the primary trigger for hormone-sensitive lipase to do its job of getting folks out of the theater is when insulin goes and takes a nap somewhere, just goes and relaxes. 
All right, that's when hormone sensitive lipase is actually able to kick into gear. Glucagon is more specifically there and primarily producing and promoting hepatic fatty acid oxidation. So oxidation of fat in the liver. So that's its primary job that it's doing, what's noted in the data. So glucagon, so many of these things we're just beginning to understand. But many of these things we've had data on, but it's just becoming more and more expansive. Again, insulin, glucagon, and hormone-sensitive lipase all take proactive jobs at managing the doors of the cellular theaters and allowing fat in or out of the cells. And one of the biggest takeaways from today and something that really allows the mobilization and activity of hormone-sensitive lipase to do its job is glucagon's close friend he can pass off the keys to named adrenaline. Adrenaline, also known as epinephrine. His teachers at school call him epinephrine. All right, that's his proper name. But his friends call him adrenaline. I just thought about <laughs> Fast and Furious. It was the Vin Diesel adrenaline, one quarter mile at a time. Adrenaline loves to get fat out of the cellular theater, loves to get everyone cleared out so they can go and kick it at the after party when the show is over. Hormone-sensitive lipase and other ushers are really motivated to get fat out of the cell once adrenaline is around. But again, the primary activator of hormone-sensitive lipase and ushering the triglycerides out of the cell, lipolysis, breaking these fatty acids down to be used for energy, is simply by allowing insulin to stop roaming around. And insulin is gonna be on guard, on job, whenever food stuff is coming in, particularly sugar, particularly high carbohydrate-based foods, just gets insulin being like that, you know, that, that helicopter parent, that, you know, that, that passenger seat driver, that overbearing manager, all right, just hovering over, constantly working too much. So as we move away and to employ some of these practices that we'll talk about, and also, again, much more in-depth and smarter. Even this cellular theater is much more in-depth we talk about it in the book, but I'm just giving you the rudimentary understanding of how this process is working. Okay, now that hormone-sensitive lipase is able to do its job, adrenaline is, is able to, to trigger and support doing this job, which again, adrenaline, aka norepinephrine, we think of it as just in this terms of being this, quote, stress hormone. But stress is not, this, this term stress is universally considered to be bad, but it's not. We Stress is a part of what makes us human and, and allows us to, to grow and to thrive and to survive. We're experiencing stress just by being here on this planet. Gravity is constantly putting pressure on our bodies. This is why if you've ever seen that movie or read the books around the, the story of John Carter, I believe Disney did that movie. But when he went to another planet, all of a sudden he's light as a feather. He's bouncing around. He's, he's able to do all these crazy things. His body's been exercising getting stressed by gravity, just the nature of being here on this planet, and the stress of, of, of movement and all these processes taking place, the stressing of, of exercising, which is incredibly beneficial for our metabolism, all these things are hermetic stressors. So just to say stress is bad is an, a really terrible oversimplification. And just to be clear though, stress can really mess you up. Excessive stress but we need stress in order for our body to do all the cool stuff that it can do. It just needs to be in balance. All right, now, this is very important. 
when we're talking about burning fat, when we're talking about, quote, burning fat, we're still, we just talked about lipolysis. That's the freeing of the fatty acids from the fat cell, okay? That's lipolysis. That is not, quote, burning the fat. Lipolysis is a process of freeing the fat from the cellular theater, but it's actually burned for energy by your mitochondria at the cellular snack bar. That's where it really goes down. Your mitochondria are really the energy powerhouses of your cells. And the universal currency that your body is using called adenosine triphosphate or ATP is what your mitochondria is making when it's taking that fat and quote, burning it. That in destination of the fat being freed from the cell, the free fatty acids being freed and actually leaving our system Quote, burning fat happens in the mitochondria. It's a process called beta oxidation, all right? Because lipolysis, just breaking down fat to use as fuel, that's not enough. That's not burning fat. The majority, listen to this. This is, inc this is incredibly important. The majority of fat freed through lipolysis is reabsorbed. Lipolysis isn't it. We, of course, it's important. It's a step in the process. A study published in Endocrinology and Metabolism covered that 70% of released fatty acids are reabsorbed. They're reabsorbed. Who knew? This process of re-esterification is when the free fatty acids recombine with the glycerol and it's going to get stored in a fat cell. It's going to get stored and used for later energy. It says, quote, 70% of released fatty acids are re-esterified at rest, and this value decreases to 25%. So we go from 70% of fatty acids get, getting reabsorbed to only 25% of freed fatty acids getting reabsorbed within the first 30 minutes of exercise. When you exercise, it's unlocking some magical power, seemingly, and actually moving the fat out of the system, all right? In exercise, more than one half of the increase in fat oxidation could be attributed to the reduction in the percentage of reabsorption, okay? So it's not just you're burning fat through exercise. You're not reabsorbing the fat that's already been released. So I hope that makes sense. Now, these mitochondria are powerful. These are mighty, mighty entities in our cells. You can have hundreds, even thousands of mitochondria in a single cell. As a matter of fact, just a little fun fact for you, approximately 10% of your body weight is mitochondria. What? All right, right, that's a tweetable right there. That's a tweetable. Your mighty, mighty mitochondria. And truly, a big part of this process is supporting the function of these metabolic Biggie Smalls. Oh, these metabolic Biggie Smalls are a huge key to supporting your cellular theater. Now, there's other bosses, there's other entities involved in this metabolic theater, like your thyroid gland, for example. And the thyroid is producing hormones that control your metabolic rate, the rate at which you burn energy. And the thyroid gland is closely connected to the brain and the gut. And so what's going on with those two things deeply impacts 
the function of the thyroid and signaling all of these different things to happen. And so we dive into that a little bit deeper in Eat Smarter, but I wanted to give you an overarching understanding of this metabolic theater and how this process actually happens. And once the fat makes its way to the mitochondria to be used as fuel and burned through beta oxidation, where does it go? Where, oh, where has that little fat gone? I think the closest approximation that people can think about just rationally what we kind of see in the world and thinking about fat being evicted from our bodies is through the appearance of sweat. All right, that's what we think that our fat cells are having a good breakup cry and they're just leaving our bodies and you know it's a, it's a sad experience. They're, they're sad to go, but you're happy to see it. So are we losing our fat through sweat or is there something else happening? As mentioned, when we attempt to quote lose fat, what we're really attempting to do is to metabolize these triglycerides Again, triglycerides are comprised of three types of atoms, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And triglycerides can only be broken down by unlocking these atoms through the process of oxidation. Now here's how fat is able to vanish into thin air. A peer-reviewed study published in the BMJ where scientists decided to follow the path of these three atoms as they are leaving the body. They discovered that when 10 kilograms of fat is oxidized, 8.4 kilograms of that fat is excreted as carbon dioxide via the lungs, while just 1.6 kilograms was released as water. So in other words, approximately 84% of the fat you lose is eliminated through your breath when you breathe out. And only about 16% of the fat you lose is through sweat, urine and other fluids, even tears from your eyes. It's a little bit of fat leaving. These calculations revealed that the lungs are the primary excretory organ for fat. Plus, if that weren't enough, the researchers estimate that about one third of the weight loss happens as you breathe during a full night of sleep. Okay, so most of the fat, how it's vanishing in the thin air literally is because we're breathing it out. This doesn't mean that breathing faster, doing the breath of fire, is the chaotic breathing is going to help you to burn more fat. That's not what it's about. That's just an end point. It's the, it's the door leaving the body. That's all that is. All of this stuff has to happen beforehand, which largely relates to our nutrition and our lifestyle. So now that we have a really good rudimentary understanding of how the process of fat loss works, how our cellular theater is functioning, how we have different fat cell communities, how our fat cells are getting stored in the first place. Now we're going to cover some of the specific foods and nutrients and, and a way of eating. We'll start with that first that supports this fat loss process, that supports your fat loss related hormones and enzymes. But one of the most overarching nutrition principles is seen in the data, which is to simply keep insulin in balance. Again, that's when everything is kicking into gear. The enzymes that do all these cool processes of fat metabolism, kicking it off, happens when insulin can sit down, relax, and take a break. So knowing that insulin is largely triggered by carbohydrate intake and sugar, not that any of these, not that carbohydrates are bad. We're not saying that, but we have a very carbohydrate-dominant society and largely refined processed carbohydrates. And even once we get into the whole grains, we can take that too far as well. 
because that's what I was taught again in my conventional, private, expensive university nutrition science class. I was paid to be miseducated. I was taught seven to 11 servings of whole grains. And my teacher was bordering on obesity himself. He was not secretly mainlining Cheeto dust and, and Pop-Tarts, all right? He, wasn't, he was doing the thing that he was teaching, but because of the role that insulin plays, for example, with that carbohydrate coming in, it might be too much. And you kick into that process, again, glucose cash on hand, writing checks over, you know, depositing in the, the, the glycogen in the liver and the muscles and getting stored as certificates of deposit in fat cells. It can happen easily with the typical meal here in the US. And so what if we just shift this ratio a little bit, just shift the ratio since we know that the big driver of insulin, which dietary fats and proteins can also stimulate the activity of insulin, but not even remotely as close as carbohydrate, and sugar cane. So what do we do? How does this work? Does it work? A study cited in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition revealed that simply lowering the study participants' ratio of carbs and increasing their ratio of protein without changing calorie intake, please hear that, without changing calorie intake, led to higher levels of satiety, a higher resting metabolic rate, and higher levels of fat oxidation. The fat actually getting burned without changing calorie intake, simply shifting that ratio. I didn't say no carbs. I didn't say even low carbs. Could be. But just lowering that ratio and increasing the ratio of protein create a favorable change in the metabolism. Now, what if we take this tenet of simply shifting our carb ratio just for one meal of the day, the day specifically to, the, to start the day, the first meal that you have, because you're, quote, breaking your fast, your, your body's metabolism is in a very influential state at that point. And this is conducted by researchers at St. Louis University and published in the International Journal of Obesity. They sought to discover what happens with fat loss when you eat a high-carbohydrate breakfast versus a high-protein-slash-fat breakfast when the calorie count of the meals are exactly the same, they stay the same, but just talking about the main macronutrient coming in. Now for the high carbohydrate breakfast, it's a breakfast that I've had many a day, many people have for their breakfast. Bagel, bagel. Of course you might be like, well, it's not a high quality carbohydrate. Even if it's a whole grain bagel, you know, we can get into nuance about this, but this is what's used in the study. And then for the high protein slash high fat breakfast, it was eggs. Now, the researchers did have the study participants to decrease their overall caloric intake by 1,000 calories a day in this study, but had different people use different macronutrient ratios just for their first meal. And here's what they found after an eight-week study period. Even though the calories on the diets were the same, the study participants in the lower-carb breakfast group showed a 61% greater reduction in body mass index a 65% greater weight loss, a 34% greater reduction in waist circumference, and a 16% greater reduction in body fat percentage, actual fat loss. Calories the same, changing that macronutrient ratio, which influences insulin, 
which influences hormone-sensitive lipase and glucagon and all the things we're talking about. This is a tenant that we can take advantage of. Does this mean you can't have your favorite breakfast even if it's a higher carbohydrate? No, this doesn't mean that. You can do what works for you, what feels good. But for some people, this might be like, oh, wow. You know, I've been doing this thing this whole time and I haven't really been getting the results that I want. Maybe let me try shifting this macronutrient ratio. Because I promise you, any smarter you learn how to take advantage and enjoy your carbohydrates. It's just how you, it's how you do it. It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. Now, I also today want to talk about and share some of the specific foods and nutrients that have some data, some really solid data affirming that it supports this process of fat oxidation. All right, so the first one that I'm gonna share is a food that a lot of people know about but this is definitely going to encourage you to maybe add this in a little bit more. Foods that influence the genes themselves that literally control these processes of metabolism are truly remarkable. So we're talking about the genetic programs controlling what insulin does, controlling what hormone-sensitive lipase does, controlling what thyroid hormone does, controlling what insulin does, controlling what, did I say insulin twice? Who knows, it matters if I say it twice because it's twice as nice, insulin is important. But adrenaline, determining what all of our hormones related to our metabolism are actually doing can be really powerful. One of these remarkable foods seen in the research are blueberries. Researchers at the University of Michigan published data finding that blueberry intake can potentially affect genes related to fat burning. And a study published in the Journal of Nutrition showed that the consumption of blueberries was able to reduce insulin resistance in study participants. Now keep in mind, a consistent sign of insulin resistance is carrying around more visceral fat. This hyperemphasizes your body when you're insulin resistant to get that sugar out your bloodstream because it's not, the insulin is not communing with the fat cells properly and getting it out of the bloodstream. But there are certain departments that can really bear the brunt of the weight, you know, primarily increasing things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease by storing more fat in the liver and creating lipogenesis there and also storing it as visceral fat. All right, so anything that we can do to improve insulin sensitivity is going to be a welcome friend to our waistline. Specifically, it's the flavonoids found in blueberries that are found to be protective against weight gain, according to scientists at Harvard University. So best blueberries, wild harvested blueberries, fantastic. Blueberries, and there's the nuance here, fresh, frozen, dried, all these different, there's many different ways. The most important thing is just to get some of this stuff in. Frozen is great because some nutrients are retained even better, while you do lose some other things, you know, so it just depends. Fresh or frozen, fresh, obviously you could use it as a snack, you could use it in different dishes. Frozen is great for smoothies and, you know, snacks and things like that. You know, the list goes on and on. So many different ways to utilize blueberries, right? But that's one of the, those simple, easy things to add in. You know, a couple berries a day can keep the fat genes at bay. All right, now another one of these powerful food sources, sources of nutrition that help to manage these metabolic processes is something else that you're gonna be familiar with but we're gonna dive a little bit deeper, and it's salt, salt. As you'll recall, the pancreatic hormone glucagon promotes lipolysis by opening up the cellular doors to release stored fat for use as fuel. 
specifically really assisting in that process with the liver. Recent data affirms that sodium aids in the performance of glucagon. You want glucagon to be able to do its job intelligently. And salt also influences the action of leptin, adrenaline, and thyroid hormone. You need salt for all of these things to do their jobs. It's incredibly important, but it's been demonized. And we'll talk a little bit about why, but a meta-analysis published in the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews uncovered that study participants placed on a low-sodium diet did have slightly lower blood pressure in the short term. That's what we think about when we think about sodium, we think about salt. But they found that over time, the restricted sodium actually led to elevated triglycerides, the thing we're trying to eliminate if we're talking about weight loss, elevated stress hormones, and accordingly, elevated blood pressure. Short term, reduce blood pressure. Long term, created some problems. So we need to be much more aware and conscientious in our management of salt. And I'm not advocating for a high salt diet. I'm just saying that we need enough of the right kinds of salt, high quality salts, because according to the Journal of the American College of Nutrition, they estimate that at least 77% of the salt intake in the American diet comes from processed foods and not what you're adding from your salt shaker. This is primarily from low quality, heavily refined salt that typically contains additives like anti-caking agents, etc., and it's devoid of all other naturally occurring micronutrients and doesn't have the long history of use that real salts have. All right. So there's a lot of folks know about Celtic salt and Himalayan salt and black Hawaiian salt and real salt. There's so many cool salts to utilize. You need salt. We need higher quality salt. We need to move away from the processed foods that contain this low quality salt. Another important nutrient adjunct for improving this metabolic process when we're talking about, quote, burning fat. This one's going to be easy. But are you doing it? Water. A peer-reviewed study published in the journal Obesity found that drinking adequate amounts of water can itself trigger lipolysis, a.k.a. the release of stored body fat. Water. Water. You sweet, sweet, wet. Never mind. And if that didn't perk up your ears enough, another study published in the journal of Clinical endocrinology and metabolism found that drinking water can also increase your metabolic rate through a process called water-induced thermogenesis. The reason that water is doing this process is not because of just your body's heating the water up or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter if it's cold water or hot water, that's not really what's making the big difference. It's the fact that water makes everything in your metabolism work better because here's just a couple of things that water is responsible for related to your metabolism. Water is, is responsible for the maintenance of your DNA. Water is responsible for facilitating reactions in your mitochondria where fat is actually burned. Water is responsible for the integrity of all of these different glands and tissues and cells that enable this incredible process of metabolism to take place. It's all happening in a water medium. That's how important water is. So are you getting enough? Is that a, a priority of yours? Because we're looking for this magical thing to help us to to lose weight and to burn fat, water is the basis. Water is the basis. All right, another thing seen in the data that actually helps to nudge, remember we talked about the different brown cell communities, beige cell communities, white fat cell communities, to nudge those beige fat cells into the realm of brown fat, 
given a little bit of a nudge is actually this C word that comes with some nuance here, but it's coffee. Coffee's been found to help to nudge beige fat cells into the brown fat cell domain and activity. And one of the studies that we highlight in Eat Smarter, researchers actually used fMRIs and looked at what happened in the body when folks drank coffee and they saw the brown fat areas of the body lit up like a Christmas tree. But as with any of these things, there's nuance here. And the quality, where is it coming from? The amounts that we're using, all this stuff we cover in depth in Eat Smarter. But I wanted you to know that because it's not just about targeting the white adipose tissue. It's targeting the other fat cell communities that make all this magic happen as well, like the type of fat that actually burns fat for energy. All right, another nutrient source that is pretty common, a lot of folks know about this, is highlighted in a new study that was published in the Journal of Translational Medicine. And it found that oleocanthal-rich, antioxidant-rich, extra virgin olive oil can potentially downgrade the expression of the FTO gene associated with excess body fat and obesity. We're talking about that epigenetic influence. We're talking about nutrigenomics here, how nutrition is affecting what your genes are actually doing. Nutrigenetics, all of these things come into play here. The scientists found that in a four-week diet intervention that included high amounts of olive oil appears to have epigenetic influences that result in improved body composition. And it's not just the remarkable antioxidants and other phytonutrients in olive oil contributing to these benefits, but the monounsaturated fatty acids themselves sparking some metabolic benefits. A meta-analysis of 24 studies found that a diet rich in monounsaturated healthy fats from whole food sources was able to reduce blood glucose levels and improve insulin sensitivity better than a standard low-fat carbohydrate diet for test subjects. Another study published in the International Journal of Obesity and Related Metabolic Disorders pitted a diet with a higher ratio of fats, specifically monounsaturated fats, head-to-head -head against a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet for overweight test subjects for 18 months. The test subjects with the higher ratio of monounsaturated fats in their diet lost more weight, lost more body fat, and lost more inches off their waist than the low dietary fat group. In fact, in this study, the low dietary fat group actually gained in all those areas. Fat is a big player in our metabolism, healthy whole food-based fats. Some of the most popular sources of monounsaturated fats that have a dense source of monounsaturated fats are nuts and seeds like almonds, Brazil nuts, cashews, and pumpkin seeds, and also grass-fed butter, beef, duck, avocados, avocado oil, olives, and of course, olive oil. So there's nuance here with the olive oil too. Of course, you don't wanna get your proposed healthy source of olive oil that's come along with pesticides and herbicides that's been used in the growing process. All right, so you want organic olive oil, cold press, right, extra virgin olive oil, and also it should be stored in dark glass because it's photosensitive, all right? So again, more of that data is in Eat Smarter. So I could go on and on. There's so many incredible foods and incredible nutrients that really help to guide and create more effectiveness and efficiency in our metabolism. Again, so many wonderful foods and nutrients that create the conditions for metabolic health in our bodies. It's important to remember that there isn't a, quote, magical fat loss food. There isn't one specific food that's going to shift your metabolic health on its own.
It's really about stacking conditions in your favor. With our lifestyle practices and also with our nutrition, of course, there are certain foods that do have a higher leverage. However, you can't utilize a really great fat loss supportive food while simultaneously doing things that inhibit fat loss. So it's stacking conditions in your favor. And one other thing that I want to mention, specifically in the nutrition domain, that targets hormone sensitive lipase that we covered today, which again is the enzyme that unlocks our fat cells so that the contents can actually be utilized for fuel, there aren't many things that have been discovered that directly act upon that enzyme. But according to a study published in the journal Phytonutrient Research, the traditional tea pu'er is one of the rare nutrient sources that has a direct significant influence on that enzyme that unlocks our fat cells. Also, we know how much our microbial health is influencing our metabolism today. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called theobrownin that's found in pu'er has some remarkable effects on our microbiome. The researchers found that theobrownin positively alters our gut microbiota and directly reduces excessive liver fat and helps to reduce lipogenesis or the creation of new fat. Pretty remarkable stuff, but again, the quality matters. You want to make sure that you're not getting a tea that's also coupled with microplastics and heavy metals and all these other things that are coming along in conventional teas that most people don't know about. The pu'er that I use uses a cold extraction process that is patented technology, a triple toxin screening for the highest level of purity as well, testing for pesticides, heavy metals, toxic molds that are all common in teas. And most importantly for me, it's wild harvested, which dramatically increases the concentration of polyphenols that are well noted to have some of these cool effects that we're talking about. So this is from Peak Teas. Head over to peaktea.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A dot com forward slash model. You're going to get an exclusive 10% off all of their incredible award-winning teas over at Peak Tea. Again, go to peaktea.com forward slash model. Now, again, we've got to make sure that education is paramount right now so that we actually understand and relate to our own bodies and stop superficially treating things, right? We want to start stacking conditions in our favor, but awareness is the first domino. Just understanding how this stuff works, it starts to put the empowerment into our hands where it really is anyways, but we start to acknowledge that. So really excited about this time. And if you got a lot of value out of this episode, please share it out with your friends and family. You can send it directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. And of course, you can share it on social media as well. Take a screenshot of the episode and tag me. I'm at Sean Model. Let everybody know what you thought about this episode. We've got some powerful, epic shows coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.